river's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm a downdoor junkie. Quest Podcast. Sweet November. What's going on, Bob? Oh, not much, buddy. Just uh, blacktail season's almost here. You guys are all fired up. Getting texts from Scott right now as we speak. <laughs> yeah, man, I've been talking to Starly and Tipton and all the guys. Everyone's jacked up. It's awesome. Yeah, a lot of, uh, for you guys that aren't from Oregon, our late blacktail season here opens tomorrow for the guys down south. and. Our last episode we had Matt Starley on and, uh, he actually bought a rifle tag this year and, uh, or a, any weapon season, I guess you want to call it. And he hunted the rifle season because this year the rifle season went a week into a good rut there, the beginning of November and he killed a dandy. So there's a little, little break in between the two and now the late bow season's starting. So yeah. Yeah. Matt's on fire for sure. And. He's going to go scratch the itch. He's leaving today to Idaho to go hunt some whitetail. So good luck to Matt out there on that one. Um, yeah, I'm headed down south. This is uh, dreams are made out of. We've been waiting for weather for uh, an opener blacktail hunt for, oh, man, it's been a long time since we've had weather. I know, man. I'm so, I'm so depressed right now. I had basically a plan A and a plan B and, both of those kind of burn up this year. I've used up all my away time hunting, so I'll be taking Ava with me. And I had a couple areas planned out that were somewhat easy to get to and just, you know, be a good time. Take her and Closer I to home, have a I think. chance, but it ain't happening now. It all burn up. Yeah, the, the fires burnt. Actually, I think the fires took about a third of my ground. Um, so kind of had to do some scouting and regrouping but i'm super excited i cannot wait to get down there and try my luck see what uh see what the blacktail season has to offer yeah so like i said last episode we had matt talking blacktails and trap bows and this episode we got a dr Dwayne jackson who uh works for odfw and he's kind of the blacktail master and he's been doing a bunch of studies on blacktails and uh, not not necessarily a hunting episode, but for you guys that are interested in the, you know, the blacktails and the biology of it and their migrations, it's a lot of good info and pretty sweet. I, I heard him speak at a commission meeting a couple of years ago, and and I had so many questions I wanted to ask, and I was just I had too much crap going on. I don't remember when you guys recorded this, but I wasn't able to make it unfortunately. So. Yeah, he, he was really generous of us this time to come on and do this. So we appreciate that. We've got, we, we actually recorded this several months ago and, uh, we, we tried to schedule it where Bob could, uh, be on there, but we couldn't line it up. Um, I can't, I, I, I could have went on for hours with him. There was so much more stuff we wanted to talk about. So I think maybe next year we'll, we'll get him back on, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, uh, you know, blacktails just in general, I think they're on the rebound with the uh, massive amounts of 
logging that we've been uh, fortunate to be able to start doing in our state. I think that's really helping the the populations out, creating better habitat for them, better grocery stores. And then they, these fires are, you know, it's definitely not going to hurt nothing. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna help as soon as they open the woods back up. So. Yeah, and so I know we've been, we've been out hunting a lot, and we haven't reported back to you guys much, and we haven't done any giveaways in a bit, but we have some good giveaways coming, and we're going to, we're going to finish up this hunting season and we'll get back on the horn here and fill you guys in on what we've been up to and how our seasons have been going. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of, kind of where we're at right now. Yep. Busy time of year. It's almost over. We'll have to wait till next year. So go get them on this last one. Yeah. I hope you guys are all out there chasing whitetails, blacktails, mule deer, whatever you guys are after. Uh, I'm sure uh, there's some information here that uh, should be helpful, and uh, we will uh, get at you guys on the next one. Good luck. Welcome to the TradQuest podcast. We've got a special guest today, Dr. Dwayne Jackson, uh, and joining me today as my co-host is Dr. Matt Starley. I'm, uh, i got a couple smart guys on the phone today, kind of kind of nervous i won't lie um i appreciate uh appreciate you guys uh taking the time out and we're gonna talk some uh blacktail deer today uh dr Dwayne jackson uh works for odfnw and he's a uh, biologist here in oregon and doing a blacktail deer study um Dwayne, why don't you go ahead and just kind of give us a rundown of who you are, uh, you know, where you grew up and uh, how you got into uh, working with blacktail deer and in the state of Oregon. <laughs> okay. Uh, hopefully it won't be too boring, but uh, I actually um, grew up in the Midwest and uh, got a couple degrees there and then um, I transitioned to Colorado State University and got my PhD there actually working on bobcats. And then um, went back to the Midwest, worked on uh, uh, deer and turkey, grouse in the Midwest for a few years, and then um, took a position here in Oregon as the uh, wildlife research supervisor for the entire west side of Oregon for the for the department. And um, since since moving out here, it's been um, pretty close to 30 years now. I've uh, been working on uh, deer, elk, black bear, cougar, uh, mule deer, uh, just about every game species that that the west side of Oregon has to offer. We're trying to obtain information for uh, appropriate management techniques for uh, those species here in Oregon. So with blacktail deer being, uh, you know, very elusive and they – call Northern California, Oregon, Washington home, the, the coast range. It's a, uh, you know, considered a very elusive, somewhat nocturnal ungulate. Um, I think that as hunters, we're always just so curious um, to, you know, understanding the biology of, of your quarry, I think, gives you a one up. And so that's like one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on today is so that we can further our knowledge, um, on these deer because, uh, you know, we, 
we love pursuing them and love learning about them. Me and Matt are real passionate about it. So um, at what point did Oregon decide to take a closer look at blacktail deer and um, what does that look like from the beginning? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's been a very long process. Um, back in 1994, uh, my team did some... Uh, initial radio telemetry work uh, going from about Roseburg south to the California border. And what we were looking at at the time was some survival rates, uh, movements, habitat use, causes of mortality, those types of things. And uh, we um, took that information and tried to implement it into some management schemes for particularly this southwestern part of Oregon, because at that time, there were quite a few actually antlerless doe tags that were being issued and, and our constituent groups were concerned about the impact of, of um, doe harvest, if you want to call it that, uh, antlerless harvest on, on the herds. And so we were trying to evaluate what kind of mortality estimates were, uh, we were having. We took that information and, and tried to implement it into some population models that we had at the time. And, um, we didn't really change much of our management regimes at the po- at that point, even after the research, because over the course of time we've had to really pare down the number of antlerless tags that are that are being available for for the herd, and um, so that that kind of went on for a time. We actually contracted with some statisticians from Oregon State University to look at all of the departmental data that we had available on blacktail deer. And we convened that group of specialists with all of our West side district bios to take a, a very close look at blacktail deer uh, data management and what we could do for blacktail deer populations in, into the future. About 1994, it appears anyway, that our blacktail deer population started to gradually decline across Western Oregon. And we don't know if that is related to the habitat conditions that were changing at that time because of restrictions of cutting, uh, cutting uh, forests on national forest lands and BLM lands, or, or if it's related to some other process. But the outcome of the, of the research and, and of the analysis from Oregon State University was that our current data set, which the districts use, which is predominantly hunter harvest information and spotlight surveys that are done in the spring and the fall, that data had too much variability to really give the department a a, a, um, place to utilize and lock in on management regimes. So the, so the agency decided, well, okay, if that's the case, we really need to pull everything together in a document, find out what we need, take that out to our constituent groups, have them evaluate it, and then go from that point. So in 2006, the agency developed a blacktail deer management plan, and that, that plan is currently available on our website if people want to get to it. But within that plan, there were several things that the agency uh, more or less told the constituent groups that we were going to do. 
One of those was to develop a better survey methodology and to get better biological data on our blacktail herds here in Oregon. And so that's when the research team really got involved in it. And in 2011, we started off on a very uh, long, intensive research project. We pulled in a bunch of our wildlife management units. We started with the, the Trask, the LC, the Indigo, and the Dixon. And we started looking at black-tailed deer populations and developing a survey technology, which we think will allow the agency to actually get population density estimates by landowner type across those units. And, so, and that is uh, looking at fecal DNA. And so what we do is we go out into the um, wildlife management unit each of those units are distributed uh, and gridded off into landowner types. We survey for fecal pellets. When you say, excuse fecal me, pellets. sorry to interrupt. When you say landowner types, no, no, that's fine. Can, can you can you be specific? Um, it, it would be what we've locked in on is like a federal property, which would be BLM, Forest Service. Uh, state property, which would be areas like Elliott State Forest or or uh, any own straight-owned property. And then we have what we call a large private uh, ownership, which would be typically it would be a large uh, company like Warehouser or Roseburg Forest Products or Justina Lands, those types of properties. And then uh, another category is a small private category, which is usually just smaller ranches that have ownerships of less than 320 acres. Okay. And so each of those types, each of those types of landowners have been surveyed. Okay. And so that's going to show, in, 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 so ahead. that's going to show a huge, like there's a huge habitat change um, from each property type, as you'd mentioned there, um, as we know, right? Oh, very much so. Uh, there's a, a lot of differences in the habitat availability for the black-tailed deer to use. Yeah. And what we've been finding, what we've been finding in general, and um, these are very, you know, generalized estimates, but but the federal property seems to have um, a lot more deer per square kilometer of that habitat than. Uh, or excuse me, the federal properties have the least, uh, about um, maybe half as much as what large private yeah. uh, timber lands have on them. And so you could say maybe, um, uh, let's just go with four deer per square kilometer on federal property and uh, about 11 deer per square kilometer on large private Okay. And that's generalized over a lot of area. Okay. So can we can that can we back up a little bit? So as you you'd mentioned the the spotlight surveys, and um, I've actually been able to go out and do a uh, spotlight survey with Stuart Love, um, district wildlife biologist. You know, you're a friend of Stuart's uh, here in Charleston, and so I've been uh, able to go out and do one of those, like one in the morning till four in the morning, spotlighting deer, and <laughs> 
Oh yeah. And I noticed like we see nothing in a lot of areas. And then we went to one area and seen a ton of deer and that really skewed the survey. And so uh, I, it left me kind of scratching my head, like how, how this, you know, how the survey could possibly come up with accurate data by, um, so many variables. So I imagine that's why you guys moved to DNA, um, surveying and maybe tell us a little bit about how that works. And I, I also would like to mention, I, I, uh, I'm a bit of a snooper, so I, I'm always just kind of paying attention and I ran into, I think it's some folks that you had subcontracted. They were from Colorado. I ran into them in the Elliott state forest and they had uh, labs and yes. I think German shepherds and they were out collecting, uh, their dogs were trained to find fecal. And I found that super yes. in interesting. I've ran into them a couple times. And so, yeah, tell us more about that. Okay. Um, well, like I, like I mentioned, uh, the uh, agency kind of determined that our spotlight surveys had a little bit too much variability. And, and what you say is exactly true is, is that you'll be driving along in very minimal amount of observations, and then all of a sudden you'll find a, a group of deer that you can – get herd comp and, and other estimates on. And so because of that um, sporadic nature of running into them, that causes variability in our trend data. And that's, that's what we wanted to try to get away from. And obviously, you're restricted uh, in those surveys to being able to observe deer with a spotlight off of the road. And so that really restricts the amount of habitat that you can uh, get information for. So that's exactly the reason why we decided going into a different survey technique. Now, the, the fecal sampling, it's uh, again, it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's based by landowner type. But what we do is we, uh, as you mentioned, we have a contractor that we uh, hire to go out and use fecal detection dogs to collect the samples. And what they do is they we have specific areas that we direct the contractor into and they enter a grid cell and then they, they use their dog, they course across the entire, more or less the entire grid cell and collect fecal samples for us. And they keep track of the amount of distance that they go and where they collect each and every sample. And so that gives us a spatial piece of information on where those samples are collected, how far they are apart. And then we take those samples, go to a lab at Oregon State University. The university can take the uh, DNA from the fecal samples and indicate to us the number of individuals in that sample set and how many of those individuals are recaptured uh, on that transect. And, and a recapture means that that animal is detected more than once uh, in the DNA analysis. And using some statistics, you can actually calculate a capture recapture rate that allows you to get density estimates, and then you apply that density estimate to the uh, line of sampling that the contractor walked. And so then that allows you to make estimates of individual deer densities 
by each of the landowner types within each of the WMUs. <laughs> yeah. And so it gets, gets somewhat complicated, <laughs> but, but that's, that's the uh, process in, in kind of a nut, uh, nutshell. And um, I've got a, I've over got the a course of years. Sure. Um, with the DNA sampling, uh, so you're, you can actually tell uh, individual specific deer and then maybe but you're saying you're getting another sample of them maybe like in a, a different location a little ways away and you can confirm that that's the same animal? Exactly. Okay. Thank you. I just wanted to clarify that. That was kind of a question. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's a very good question. Yeah, the, the genetics, um, uh, and I'm not a geneticist, but the, the genetics are, are really uh, uh, precise nowadays. And, and what, what we're able to do is actually with a certain amount of confidence, and, and we've usually locked in on about 85 90% confidence, we can tell one individual from another based on the genetics that come from the fecal sample and, you and using that, that same information. Can you tell, that's very cool. That, can you tell uh, what the animal is eating, like what uh, plants, species they're primarily eating on from the sample? Not, for, not from the DNA analysis. It, it's kind of an interesting process. Um, the, the, the pellet itself is not really what we extract DNA from. And the pellet would have all the contents of the forage that, that the black-tailed deer are eating. Actually, what we're looking for is fresh samples that have, uh, uh, actually, think of it this way. As the pellet uh, moves through the digestive system of the deer, it's going through and it's collecting epithelial cells from yeah. the track of the yeah. deer. And when it's deposited on the ground, and we pick it up, we extract the DNA from the epithelial cells that are connected to the pellet itself. And the pellet on the inside really means nothing to us. What we want is that, um, if you will, a kind of a slimy covering on the outside of the pellet. That's where the DNA is at. That makes sense. Um, along with that, I had another question. What was the your numbers on the small private parcels? I saw that you said you said four on the federal and eleven on the large. And so I was going to ask you two questions. Well, what, One was what is what is the small private amount? And then also, did you guys do some sort of selection process for habitat types? Because obviously, you know, federal uh, federal land has a lot of like old growth timber and not as many open cuts with good feed and forage for the deer. Was there a way that you like? broke down, you know, those open areas to the more timbered areas and the, the thicker reprod areas, or did you just do it randomly? Well, what we wanted to do and what we should have done is to uh, collect the fecal sampling based on habitat type. But we were restricted in being able to do that because th there's no um, – uh, I guess you'd call it a generalized, evenly distributed habitat GIS layer across Western Oregon. And so it's very difficult for us to go in and say, okay, this, uh, and, and doing this from uh, remotely, I guess you'd call it, from a computer saying, okay, we know exactly what the habitat type is in this 
spot on the ground from um, a GIS layer. And so what we, we ended up doing was, since we weren't having the ability to seamlessly look at habitat across Western Oregon, we decided to go to the landowner. Yeah. The landowner type. That makes and, sense. And make, the assumption, and make the assumption that the landowner type and the landowner's management of, of their property relates back to what the habitat is for those deer to select from. And so that's what we had to use for the categorization or the stratification across the, of the units was the landowner and not the habitat type. Now, that being said, when we, when we do the sampling, we, we record the type of habitat that we're collecting from. And so we have that kind of post hoc, if you will, but we didn't do it up front for the selection process just because we couldn't. Uh, that that makes that makes a lot that makes a lot of uh, sense to me. Um, you know, I I, I do some um, some habitat surveys for the Coos watershed, and we work on you know all different land types, like you were talking about. You know, private timber company lands uh, to family ranches, um, and you could pretty much a guy that works out into those different habitats. You could pretty much take a guy like that anywhere, blindfold him and unblindfold him. And he could tell you like, yeah, I'm standing on BLM right now, or this is state land, or this is warehouser, or this is Roseburg, just because the management, uh, is, uh, very, um, generalized to that property owner. Yep. And, and that's what we found is that, and, and that's the reason why we, we decided to go that way because we do have landowners, uh, the the property ownership across Western Oregon as a seamless layer uh, that we can uh, go and put it into a computer and stratify based on that and pick our sampling locations and that's the reason why we did that. So can the, can you tell the age of the deer from the DNA sampling? You can't tell the age, but you can tell the gender, um, and so that's what that's another interesting a piece of information that we've been able to collect from the fecal DNA. As you probably saw when you were doing the spotlight survey, um, it's very difficult to detect antlers, uh, particularly on small bucks at a distance with a spotlight. Yep. And so there's, uh, we, we feel that there's probably some bias when you're doing spotlight surveys on the number of bucks that you count versus the, the number of does and fawns. And so, over the course of time, most of our spotlight surveys indicate about uh, 20, 25, maybe 30 in a good unit bucks per 100 does. And, th- and this is branched antler bucks. Interestingly enough, what we're finding from the fecal DNA, and I, and I honestly believe this is the case, is that we're getting 40 to 50% of the samples being male and not all of those are branched antler bucks because of the time of the year that we do the sampling. We're doing the sampling April, May, and June. And so those male samples, if you will, actually include uh, male fawns from the previous year. But with our newest regulations that are going to be coming up in the next couple years for buck harvest, those 
fawns will be spikes this fall. And so they will actually be legal males for harvest in this coming season. And so what we're finding is 40, 40 to 50 bucks per hundred does versus what you see in the spotlight counts of 20 to 25. Okay. And so the outcome, we have twice as many bucks on the landscape as what we thought we had before we started doing the fecal sampling. Okay, so that's that's very interesting, and I'm sure we're gonna have a lot of guys going. How could that, you know, as as elusive as these deer are, like how could that be true? And you also uh, brought up a hot topic there on the spike uh, buck being uh, available for harvest in next year's season. That's a that's a new addition, and it's a touchy subject for people who don't understand it. Can we maybe? dive into that a little bit and tell us why we're going in that direction for management? No, by all means. Um, we took a very close look at it. It wasn't something that we, we jumped into um, without a lot of consideration. Um, there, there's several reasons for doing that. Uh, one, obviously, is the opportunity for people to um, harvest a, an animal on their tag. Harvest rates have been going down slightly in the in the past few years for for branched antler bucks, and so we decided that uh, give the opportunity to those hunters if they wish to harvest spikes, and and to try to maintain or actually increase our harvest rates across the WMUs. So that was one consideration: is being able to have the hunters actually harvest and be successful. The second consideration is we, we took a very close look at what proportion of the harvest could potentially be spikes and how that might relate to the population dynamics for bucks across all the WMUs. It appears that the percentage of spikes in the harvest will be very minimal. And like I mentioned, we have a lot more bucks out there on the landscape than what we thought. And so we actually did some population modeling looking at the impact of spike harvest to our populations. And it, it looks, looks like, to us anyway, that the minimal spike harvest that will occur is going to have absolutely, well, I shouldn't say no, but very minimal impact on our populations into the future. What's going to impact our uh, populations into the future is the adult doe survival rates. And the thing that we changed uh, is that, as you may recall, in our previous regulations, with the antlerless tag, you could harvest a doe or you could harvest a spike even with the antlerless tags. We've changed that so that now you can't harvest a spike with the antlerless tag. It has to be a doe. Okay. And so we're actually quote, we're actually quote saving spikes on the antlerless tag that could now be harvested on the buck tag. And proportionally, a lot of people that had those antlerless tags were harvesting spikes. And so 
we felt that, okay, let's take them out of that antlerless harvest, make them a legal buck in the, in the buck harvest. We're saving, saving spikes there. We're shooting them in the buck harvest and, and it's kind of going to be a wash, so to speak. And so that was one of our other considerations. And doesn't the spike have like a, uh, a, like a 50, 50% survival rate in his first year, just because he's not really, um, in the herd per se, or is that, um, more stats that align with elk? Well, if you look at, um, cause of mortality across populations, for our does, particularly the other thing that I should mention, all with all this fecal sampling and stuff, we actually radio collared blacktail does and some bucks in the same areas that we were doing the fecal sampling. And so along with all of the fecal sampling data, we have biological information on blacktail deer in those WMUs. We've radio collared uh, going on 500 blacktail deer right now. Since since 2011, and and, and what, in which units we have uh, in Yeah, and now in the Tioga and the Applegate. Okay. Oh, cool. And and we, yeah, we've got uh, right at 500 radio collared animals, and so we have we have home range data, we have habitat use data, we have mortality cause causes of mortality, we have. Um, uh, movement data and survival data for for black tail deer across all of those WMUs. Is that and then we link that. Sorry, is that data going to be available no, for public or uh, for the public to look at, or any of those studies? Oh, by all means, um, we have. Uh, what we've been doing this work uh, through a federal aid grant process. And what that means is that the Pittman-Robinson program, uh, if you're familiar with that, actually provides money back to the state to do research on uh, specified grants. Each year, I put in a request for uh, money from the federal aid program. And so what that allows me to do is actually do this research. We, we actually are obtaining federal monies and so 75% of the cost of all of the research is federal monies, and only 25% of the cost is, comes from our license dollars. And, and so it's, it's really an excellent process for us as Oregonians and hunters to have this option of pulling that money back into the state to, to use for research purposes. So that being said, all of that, all of that data is provided on an annual basis back to the federal aid pro, uh, project. And I can send people uh, our annual reports if they want. The other thing that I have available at this point in time is I've had some graduate students help me at Oregon State University, and we have some master's theses that uh, detail a lot of the movement, survival, and habitat uh, use information uh, f- for the, the studies that we've been working on. Oh, very and, cool. And so, the, yes. Yeah, we, love, so we have pieces. I would love to get my hands on that. 
Yeah, yeah. that's great. So that's, uh, for yeah, those uh, that don't just, know the Pittman Robert Robertson Act, I mean that is so huge that our dollars from the sportsmen that are being used to to be able to get us information like this. I think it's uh, it's really cool to see that um, coming through in a big way um, and allowing you guys to do these types of studies because they're very time involved. They're, you know that requires a lot of resources that nobody's going to have unless uh, it's done kind of federally like that, like you guys have been doing. So that's cool. Yeah, there was no way that we could do a study like this without the support of of Pittman Robinson. And and so, um, you know, the hunters and stuff, they actually, they provide that money, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah. Uh, When they buy ammo, they buy sporting goods, they buy firearms, that money goes into the Pittman Robinson fund. And then we as an estate agency, we apply for that money back to be able to use it here in Oregon. And so it's, it's an excellent process. And uh, like I say, I provide on an annual basis, a report back to federal aid, everything that we did that year. And so those, those federal aid uh, reports are available through me. If, if people want to contact me or if they, if they're really skookum and being able to um, go to the web, they can go to the federal aid grant process and find my reports online there too. Okay. Okay. So you guys going back to the surveys, so you did away with the spotlight survey or is that data still um, encompassed to the, the research? We're actually phasing out a little bit of the um, spotlight survey in some of our WMUs. We haven't been able to to utilize the fecal sampling in all of the WMUs because it is costly. It does take contracting um, individuals to do it. And so some of our WMU biologists are still using spotlight surveys and doing the best that they can. And that being said... They're taking that data, and they're taking the data from the the closest WMU that we have fecal sampling and pulling that into their population models. Because what we have, the, the population models that we're using right now for black-tailed deer incorporate a lot of data. It, it incorporates doe survival, fawn survival, fawn recruitment, uh, buck-doe ratios, um, population estimates, density estimates, all that information goes into our population modeling. For those WMUs that don't have it, they're using the data from the research for the closest WMU to them uh, and and similar habitat type. And that's the reason why we've spread that research across Western Oregon. We started in the Trask. We're currently working in the Applegate. And so we've, we've got data all the way across Western Oregon. It's not every single WMU, but it's the best that we could with the resources that we have available. Okay. Um, are you guys also utilizing um, any kind of trail camera uh, collection data in these uh, management units? Um, most of our WMUs don't really utilize uh, trail camera sampling. But that being said, uh, the district biologists out of our Central Point area uh, have a very long-term data set on uh, migration paths, uh, corridors, that they've been able to document. 
uh, actually with, with the help of our initial research that I mentioned that we did back in the 1990s, yeah. we documented some of those movements. And the Central Point staff have camera data on migration paths that, that uh, look at uh, movement from the high elevations up around uh, Crater Lake National Park down into the winter range areas around Medford Central Point area. And I'm glad you actually mentioned that because that's another validation of our buck ratios. That data from their trail camera data indicates that they are actually seeing uh, somewhere around 40 to 50 bucks per hundred does too. And so it's, it's documented not only in the fecal data, but from that set of long-term camera data that our staff at Central Point have. And, and, on uh, migration corridors. And if I remember, I've looked. I am familiar with that study. And if I remember right, it's been a while since uh, I've observed it. Um, they showed a pretty high uh, percentage of mature bucks in that uh, data set too, as well, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's very discouraging to to be honest with you, because um, you know, you when you start looking at that data. And the proportion of four points or better in the in the samples, it just amazes me how how many large antlered bucks that we have out there that people just they don't see them, they don't harvest them, but yet they're there. And uh, as a hunter myself, it's just it it um, makes me mad, I guess, that I can't find those animals when I did really need to <laughs> well i could tell you one, one <laughs> guy, I, I can tell you one guy that's not mad uh we've got him on the phone right now matt was able to uh put an arrow in a mature big giant buck this year down in uh southern oregon so some guys get lucky yeah After well in most cases trying, so it was lucky yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I don't think it's luck to be honest with you it, it takes a lot of dedication and and like you guys are saying, you need to know uh, as much as you can about the biology of the animal and what kind of habitat they're, they're utilizing and, and what their, their patterns are. And then that, that revolves into, quote, the luck that you're having in harvesting those animals. But um, I've not been able to successfully harvest a really large one, but... Uh, even with all the information that I have, but right, yeah, there, there you go. Well, well, yeah, we we hunted Southern Oregon this year, and uh, Matt was uh, uh, set up in a tree saddle in a uh, brand new spot that he had kind of scouted, and it all came together, and he was able to let the arrow fly out of his longbow. On man, it's a one of the most coolest bucks you've ever seen. He's probably a five six year old four by three mainframe. 25 wide and he's got an extra main beam coming uh, uh, off of one side that forks pretty cool buck well that sounds that sounds phenomenal uh, congratulations yeah um so <laughs> well, thanks. definitely yeah um i wanted to ask about the small private land did you notice about the same density deer densities estimation as the large private land parcels it, uh, it's slightly smaller um, or less, let's put it that way. And, and again, these values that I'm telling you are, are very generalized and 
people should um, take them with a grain of salt until we until we finish yeah. all of the fecal analysis. But the small private have um, about nine deer per square kilometer versus the 11 that we're seeing on large private. Okay. Um, as far as movement, we just talked about the migration in Southern Oregon. We, we, uh, it's, you know, it's well documented that we have deer that are making, uh, big trips in the fall to migrate down in the Southern Oregon portion. What about the Valley deer? Um, some of the Northern Cascade deer or even the coastal deer, like what kind of movements are you seeing? Cause I know that at one time it was believed that a uh, black a uh, mature buck has like a, a very small home range. His core area is believed to be like football field size. And I, I'm wondering if these studies are breaking, you know, that loose. And if there's uh, more information that these deer are moving more than we thought. Well, it depends on where you look. <laughs> um, the coast range deer have extremely small home ranges. Uh, probably definitely less than a square mile and maybe even less than a half a square mile uh, based on the information that we've been able to collect from the radio marked does and, and some, some radio marked bucks. Now, as you move into the Cascades, the lower elevation animals also have very small home ranges and have very minimal movements outside of that home range. What we have seen is that the Cascade deer have about twice the size of home range as what the Coast Range deer have. Um, as you move up in the Cascades, you get above, um, let's say, 2,500 feet, 3,000 feet, something like that in elevation. Those deer do have annual uh, movements. I wouldn't call them migrations per se, but they, they stay out of the snow. And so they'll move eight, 10 miles, maybe 15 miles out of the snow to, to a uh, winter range area. Okay. Now, that being said, as you, as you move south in the Cascades, let's say you go from Roseburg to Central Point to the California border, the farther south you get, the larger the migration movements and the higher the percentage of animals that are migrating uh, out of the population. So up around Roseburg, maybe, uh, and this is just kind of off the top of my head, maybe 20%, 25% of the animals actually migrate. As you get down towards the California border with Oregon, uh, almost a hundred percent of those animals are migrating and those movements are huge. Some of those animals are moving 80 miles in the fall. They winter down around central point Medford. They turn around and they migrate 80 miles back up to near crater Lake, uh, the wilderness, uh, the, um, wilderness areas up around the, the crest of the Cascades. And surprisingly enough, those animals are locked into those migration paths. We've actually caught animals in our capture traps. Let's say we caught an animal in, in the summer up around Crater Lake. It migrates 80 miles down to Medford, spends the winter, migrates 80 miles back up, and we catch that animal in the same exact trap 
in the same two two square feet of of area the following summer. Wow, that's awesome! It is amazing. Um, that is really cool. So, um, in line with that, can you touch on what time of year you see those that migration starting and when they kind of tend to return? Did you find some consistencies in that, or is it primarily snow dependent? It it's variable. Uh, but within a, um, a fairly close time range, the the study from the, the trail camera study from Central Point is probably some of our better data for migration, because like I say, most of our other radio collared deer don't migrate. Um, but that that trail camera study down there around Central Point really has some good information on that. So it appears that that, that the does and the fawns will migrate <clears throat> first. They'll move down um, near the beginning of rifle season, and then the bucks will will start migration. Depending on weather conditions, uh, pushing that, they'll start maybe a week uh, or two later and move down to uh, lower elevations. And so it's it's usually pretty close to the rifle season when we see the fall migration That's and then exactly in what spring, I would, what I would think, yeah. yeah. So, so and then in my spring, observations, I've seen, I've seen that it seems like I was going to guess mid October is when I've seen bucks, even if there's not snow, I feel like they move out of that high country to prepare for the rut and start going down where the, there's higher concentration of doe groups. Um, and if those does are migrating earlier, that would just probably further confirm that. Yep, exactly, and and uh, so the, those bucks are a little bit later, and it seems like it's um, maybe linked to, to some weather conditions. But we've we've tried to make some correlations there, but it kind of falls apart a little bit because the with, with the actual buck movement because the rut happens. But I think it it is. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say it, it. It is linked a little bit to the temperature and weather conditions. Uh, but I wouldn't say that it's um, uh, dominated by that. I think like you mentioned that those animals are the, particularly the, the larger bucks, they're staying a little bit higher in elevation than most of the other animals. And then they move a little bit later, but they, they catch up to those does down on winter range. And, you know, most of our um, breeding and stuff occurs around November. Uh, because what we're seeing is the peak fawning is around the 10th to the 15th of June, pretty much across Western Oregon. And the gestation period for, for black-tailed deer is 203 days, uh, essentially seven months. And so that puts the peak rut or breeding at about November the 10th. Okay. So does that, that correlates, I mean, that falls perfect in kind of, you know, uh, my knowledge on black-tailed deer as far as western Oregon, coastal deer, valley deer. But when you go down to that those mig- migration deer in southern Oregon, it, it kind of feels like the rut is more towards like the 25th of November versus like that 5th, 10th of, no- of November that you see on the coast. Or is that just... Um, you know, our observation. 
Well, it, it's kind of surprising. Actually, I think it might be a little bit earlier because based on, we've got a, um, uh, a fawn mortality study that we've been conducting three years now in the Applegate unit. And the fawns that we're catching there uh, seem to be being born a little bit earlier than what we're, we've got, I've got two fawn study areas, one in the Cascades uh, east of Roseburg and then one in the Applegate unit west of Medford. And the fawns down around Medford are, seem to be born a little bit earlier than the ones that we're catching up in the Cascades near Roseburg. Hmm. And so, I, I, honestly, I don't know. It, it that, could be some... Yeah. That makes sense. Apple, the Applegate unit, I mean, there are some high country there and some migration, but I feel like most of those deer, especially if they're down lower, they're not getting the snow levels that the migrating deer out of the Cascades are because you're, you're kind of separated by the valley there in that Applegate unit. So that might be the, the difference there. That If you were like over in the Rogue unit, I bet you'd see something similar to what you're seeing up there where those phones are probably being born later, but I could be wrong in that. Well, I, I think you're pretty close to the right. One of the things that <laughs> we're also radio calling deer in the Applegate unit and um, those animals that are close to the California border, they, they are doing some really interesting stuff. Um, we have some animals that are, migrating out of the Applegate unit, going into California in the winter, uh, apparently to get out of the snow conditions, or at least that's the assumption. And so they're actually wintering in California. But we've actually had some deer migrate out of the Applegate unit in the spring to go to California to fawn. And hmm. that, that one, uh, I wouldn't have expected that. But those animals in the Applegate unit, some of them are moving 40, 50 miles to go from, from Oregon into California to either wow. winter or to fawn. And okay, so that's, yeah. that's some really interesting yeah. stuff. So I know a lot of a lot of hunters, especially, you know, we pay attention to the whitetail community because there's you know a lot of information there. Um, the guys talk about the secondary rut, you know, where a doe doesn't get bred and she comes back in, is it 21 days later? Is that correct? Three weeks later or 30 days later? Yeah, it's, it's roughly, yeah. yeah. Um, what, 20 to 24, something like that. What percentage do you think of our black-tailed does are missing that first estrus and, and, and then coming back in and getting bred on the second or even third estrus? And how? what kind of data do you guys have on that? Well, um, you caught me a little off guard on that one. I, the, the only thing that I'd be able to tell you there is that I, I do have some fawn birthing data. And if you want to take a look at the fawn, fawning birthing data, we do have what, it, what appears to be a couple peaks. And so I'm, I'm always assuming that that second peak of uh, births that we're seeing is probably related to that second estrus. Okay. And I don't know what the percentage of individual does are that are being bred in the second, if you want to call it the second estrus, but there is a definite peak and it's in uh, later June that um, 
when we actually see that second peak, which goes right in with what you would anticipate. If, if the normal peak is around the 10th of June, then the second peak is around the late June to we've actually had a couple of fawns in, in July, but mainly it's the last week of June. We, we see that second peak. Now, you could go back and look at the fawn data and proportionally allocate what, pro- what proportion of those fawns are in that second peak. I haven't done that, but that, that's really an excellent question that I could do. Yeah, and yeah, in, in in lines with that, well, I was going to ask a question about, um, you know, your buck-to-doe ratio and what you guys estimate to be like an ideal buck-to-doe ratio. Because as as buck numbers, if buck numbers are lower than what's ideal to you know per to breed the viable does that are able to be bred, then technically wouldn't you see an increase in that second peak and um, that second estrus cycle? Um, that might be a way of kind of estimating that buck to doe ratio and what the ideal numbers are. Is it a goal to get them all bred on the first time? Is it beneficial for them to wait later because maybe the weather's better if they breed them later, the fawn is born later in more favorable conditions? Well, well, wouldn't it be best for predation for everything to happen at the same time, I would imagine? And, and, and I think like what Matt's leading towards is like is if we've got a 50-50 buck-to-doe ratio, how could we possibly have does not getting bred with the, with that kind of ratio? Okay, there's there's two reasons for that. Um, as you may know, uh, the estrus in black-tailed deer is really related to the, the doe's body condition. And the doe has to have a certain percentage of body fat on her before she goes into estrus. And so that, and I'll get back to this in a minute, but that really relates to the amount of forage availability that those does have going into the estrus period or the, the uh, rut period. And if, if a doe is in a area that has poor forage availability, she doesn't build up that body condition early enough that she comes into estrus when everybody else does. And so that, that's the reason why you get into this situation where you see uh, a kind of a, a distribution of fawning across the period is those does are uh, all coming into estrus at different points in time based on the body condition. And the body condition relates to the area that they have available to get the forage resources. Okay. In addition to that, so in addition to that, we have adult does that generally have um, the birthing fairly well categorized into a time period uh, when most of the other adult does are going into estrus. But our yearling does are just building up to essentially their first estrus period. And they are usually the ones that, at least in most years, are causing that second peak Mm. because the yearling does have to um, build up their body conditions to get to that point to have estrus. So back to your original question. We, We feel that 
there is a about a twenty uh, to thirty bucks per hundred uh, adult bucks per hundred does is sufficient to breed all of the does that go into estrus, and that's what we have been managing for for years. We actually, I think, we have a lot more adult bucks than that, uh, based on the fecal data and based on the camera studies that I mentioned. Uh, and and so, one of the things that we that I did in some other other research years ago is we took a look at um, um, reproductive tracts from does that were harvested. And what I can tell you is that. When we have that data and take a look at it, all of our adult does, and this was several years ago, so I can't, can't say that it's exactly the same uh, process right now, but every single adult doe was pregnant. Most of them had an indication of two fawns, and about 60% of the yearling does were pregnant. Okay, that was my question. Was, was, so, was, well, I was wondering what, what percentage of the yearling does were uh, being bred, about 50%. Right. It's, it's about 50 to 60%, but most of those only had an indication of a single fawn. Okay. And, okay. and so they're, um, those, those yearling does, they're fighting, if you will, to get up to a body condition where they can actually breed. Yeah, and even if they're successful in breeding, they they just don't have the body resources to be able to produce two fawns. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what about uh, a mature buck? How how many times can he breed during uh, a breeding uh, season? And is he able to to uh, to tend? You know, five six does. Like, what what is his capability? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. But um, some, of, some of the literature indicates that if you have um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 bucks per 100 does, you should have that buck ratio should be sufficient to uh, breed all of your does in that herd. And so that, that means that each individual buck, could, yeah, can handle that okay. uh, four or five, maybe six does for each buck. Okay. That makes, that makes sense. I don't know physically what they're capable of doing though. I, I couldn't tell. Right. You. Okay. Do um, you guys have radio telemetry information on bucks during the rut and their movement patterns? We don't. And that's a, that's a key point that a lot of, um, people really ask for. And, and then there's, there's a reason for that. The, the radio callers that we use um, are, are GPS data uh, and they have to have access to satellites. As everybody knows, when you put a, a radio caller on a buck, they go into rut, their neck swells. If you have a collar on that deer, um, you're, probably restricting that animal from being able to um, survive in some cases if you put the collar on too tight because the neck swells, the collar gets extremely tight. And even if, it, if, if it's not too tight to cause mortality, the collar shifts around on the deer 
and it puts that GPS unit off to the side and you can't get good location data. And so what we've done in several situations, we've talked to our companies that provide radio callers to us and we've, we keep telling them we need a radio caller that expands during the rut, maintains that satellite reception, and then retracts as that animal goes out of rut. Good news is th- there is a couple new developments uh, on the market now, and we're going to be trying some of that data uh, or uh, equipment in the next couple years on bucks. Cool. What we've done in the past is we've put on radio callers that break off just prior to the rut. Ah. So we have data all year round, but we don't have it during the rut because we didn't want to stress that animal during the rut. Mm. But uh, like I said, uh, I'm going to be starting up another study uh, down around Medford looking at winter range uh, habitat use and migration paths uh, using GPS collar data. And we're going to put out some bucks that will have collars on year round. And so we'll have in the near future, we're going to have some of that um, uh, migration data and rut data from bucks. Oh, that's so exciting. That's so exciting. Um, do you guys, I ran into, um, it wasn't Dan Summers. It was another, or his wife, it was another gal, someone from your team. I think I ran into him. I, I, don't, I don't even remember. I was out doing some um, survey work. But they were doing some, I believe, some bait sites for you guys. Are you guys doing bait sites so that you can get the the DNA fecal found? Or how's that part of your guys? Well, okay. We are actually doing some bait sites. And there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one of the other studies that I'm working on is where we've got radio collared elk uh, in the Tioga unit. And that's probably where you run ran in, yeah, into some of my staff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we are working on black-tailed deer, trying to get radio callers on more black-tailed deer in the Tioga, along with elk. And so we're putting out bait sites to um, capture elk and to capture black-tailed deer, depending on which animal comes into our, our bait site. And so that's probably the reason that you run into them. Okay. Um, and and the, the radio caller data that we have there is uh, based primarily on capturing black-tailed deer with clover traps. It's a, it's a device that we use to catch them. And or we use dart guns with immobilizing drugs to dart the deer and then radio collar the animal that way. What's the clover trap? It's a, it's a um, uh, how, do, how should I explain it? It's a um, trap that's made out of um, metal piping. It's about uh, six, seven feet long, about four feet tall. It's a rectangle device, and the the pipes are on the top, the bottom, and the corners, and then in between, we have netting. And so um, there's a trip mechanism in the device. You set set the device out over the bait and open the door, the deer walks into this, uh, <laughs> into the trap, hits a wire, and the door falls down on the deer. And then we have cameras that send us images of uh, our 
activity at the bait sites or at the trap sites. And then so we monitor these via remote images. And when a deer is caught, we run out. Um, the, the trap is designed so that it kind of collapses down on the deer once, it, that once we get to it. And so we can kind of squish the deer down on the ground. Mm. And then we move it around, get the deer out from underneath the netting, uh, take all the biological samples, put a radio collar on it, and let it go. And so that, that's this device. That it's called a, a, a clover trap. And the reason that it's called a clover trap, it was, the first biologist that designed it, his last name was Clover. <laughs> okay. All right. And is that, is that uh, primarily the way you catch them? Because I imagine waiting around darting them has got to be a lot more work. Uh, it depends on the area in, in the Cascades. We're very successful in capturing deer in the clover traps. Uh, the coast range has been a little more problematic and we actually have higher success rates darting animals at night, um, driving along at night with spotlights mm-hmm. and over bait. Over bait. Now, in, and surprisingly, in the Applegate unit, we've been very successful with clover traps. And so it really depends on the area where you're working. Um, are you guys looking at baiting as far as that's a, a, a legal means for um, hunting in the state of Oregon? Um, with CWD outbreaks, you know, happening in the West, are you guys, you know, looking at baiting, uh, and how that affects our herd and if that's healthy for our herd or. Well, uh, I'll answer that in two different ways. Um, if, um, if you're talking about people feeding deer in urban environments where there's a lot of deer that are concentrating around, uh, feeding at, uh, sites in urban environments, uh, that's been more or less, uh, outlawed. Okay. Now, as far as hunting, it's still a current legal uh, methodology. Yep. And we, we think that at this point, that process is so dispersed across the landscape that it probably is not attracting enough individual animals to have an impact with uh, CWD. But that being said, if, and, and hopefully we never go there, if Oregon ever gets a case of CWD, then that will definitely be something that, that the agency takes a look at. We don't want any situation that concentrates animals at a single site where that um, disease can transfer from individual to individual. And, and you saw some of our responses on outlawing urine uh, for hunting. Yep. And that, that was exactly the reason why we did that is that you can't, well, apparently you can now, but previously the urine manufacturers uh, or providers weren't able to guarantee that those samples were uh, chronic wasting disease free. And so we didn't want that prion in the environment. Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah. so in urban environments where people are just feeding deer for recreational purposes, it, it's not allowed for hunting purposes, it's still allowed because it's a very dispersed activity across the environment. Okay. 
But I, I can't guarantee you that we won't we won't outlaw if we get CWD in the Sure, state. absolutely. Yeah. Um, what have you guys found in baiting deer yourselves? Um, I mean, I, I've played around with it um, in the past uh, for um, hunting, and I found that it just really makes the uh, deer very nocturnal in nature and uh, a, a bit weary. Um, I don't know what your guys' observation has been. Well, um, we're doing it for for different purposes other sure. than hunting, um, and so we've really never paid much attention to that. What what we want to make sure is that our efforts result in the capture of a deer, so that we can right. radio market and get biological data. Um, well, I guess I'd have to go back. And, and, uh, a majority of them, yeah. yeah, a very high percentage. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what we would think. Yeah. Um, do you have any other baiting questions, James? I was kind of want, I'm dying to ask him some buck movement questions. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Um, I, uh, was going to see, since you guys do have some buck movement patterns, I know it's not during the rut, but are there, uh, just some generalizations? I mean, I, you know, as hunters, we're primarily hunting bucks we're uh hunting them during daylight hours and from my understanding you know most ungulates like white-tailed deer the studies that show their movement patterns their primary feeding patterns are at night which goes along with the baiting and kind of why they're probably being caught at night they're you know when they once they establish a good food source their their movement is kind of based off of going to that food source and you know in the most protected time at night when uh, hunters aren't out and about. So during the day, I guess I've got a couple questions. You know, what are some uh, home range uh, information that you have on? You broke it down by units, but are the home ranges for bucks the same as does? Would be one question. And then um, I would know you're going to say that bucks move more at night. I just, I mean, there's no way that they don't. But I guess, are there any generalizations? <laughs> during the day that maybe you guys have observed, you know, like movement in the morning when they're going back to, to the bedding are, is probably not as good of a time as in the evening when they're actually getting up. Have you noticed any trends in daytime movement in those bucks and maybe some generalizations that we could take away? Okay. So, so I'm giving away a bunch of secrets here right now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but what we see is that, uh, from our radio caller data, the the bucks have a similar home range size as the does during most of the year. Uh, the habitat choice by bucks is a little bit different than for does during a, a majority of the year. A lot of it is a lot more, uh, I, I should say, brushy or a dense type habitat compared to what the does are using. And... Uh, except during the rut. Uh, and we have very minimal data uh, beginning at, at the beginning of rut, just before most of those radio callers break off. And it does seem that, that those bucks at the beginning of rut start moving into the habitat that the does are in, as you would expect. But I can't, I can't say exactly what happens during the rest of the rut. Now, movements during the time of the day. Uh, it, it's very, uh, there's two peaks, like you mentioned, 
pre-dawn is a movement period that a lot of the bucks will utilize. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's, it's usually just prior to legal hunting hours. That's when we see yeah. the most movement. And uh, if you're fortunate enough to catch a buck that's late, <laughs> you're going to see him moving. But almost all of that movement by bucks is just pre-dawn before it gets legal hunting. There is a small peak of activity around noon, noon, one o'clock, which is a point that you could probably utilize for your hunting activities. And then the highest peak of activity for bucks is two to four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So two, uh, yeah, two to four in the morning. That's so, so get into your tree stand in the dark, Starly, and don't get out. Stay there all day. That's <laughs> no, well, I mean, yeah. this, just, this is perfect. This is perfect with our strategy. You know, most of our strategies are geared to around hunting buck bedding and areas, like you said, that they're protected. They're, they're not going to move a lot in there, but you're, you're getting in really close to where they're spending the majority of the day and catching them hopefully in that noon to one period or sometime around them where they're just getting up to browse and lay back down. Um, that is a lot of what our strategy has been. Cause we're, you know, we're hunting with a traditional bow. We're trying to get within 20 or 30 yards of these things. So the strategy has really found, you know, that we found have been, you know, locating an area that home range you said about the coast is spot on with what I would assume. I mean, I see bucks living right underneath our noses here that you never even know are there, but I'll get pictures of them on camera. And they're like, they're in places that people are traveling all around and they're just living in this little tiny spot and not venturing out of there except for two or four in the morning to maybe to go out into some of those really nice feeding areas and fill their belly and go back. Um, and then during the rut, you know, you might catch them during the day looking for doe groups and stuff. So interesting. Yep. And, and that, that type of information also has an impact on our spotlight surveys. Okay. Cause like you mentioned earlier, uh, most of our biologists are going out, they start right at dark and they, they go up to maybe one o'clock in the morning trying to collect as much data as they want. And I told them, a lot of them, if you really want to get an indication of <laughs> how many bucks you have on your route, you should be starting later at night and going to, you know, two, three, four o'clock in the morning. And that's when those bucks are really active. And you probably would, would see an increase in the number of bucks per per doe on your routes but yeah you know it, it, it's asking a lot for for our district wildlife staff to be able to do that to work to four o'clock in the morning and then come back into the office at eight o'clock the next day yeah for <laughs> or sure. that same morning <laughs> for sure yeah so with but, but that could be some of the reasons why we only see 20 30 bucks per hundred does on our spotlight surveys is that yeah those spotlight surveys aren't done during that most active buck time period. Yeah, that makes well, and the other one is what I've what I've really noticed, or what we really noticed is, like you said, those bucks prefer a different habitat. And it seems to me, especially on the coast, the mature bucks like to be alone. They're not living in areas that are with like high deer densities. Like they're probably the one of the few animals living in that area. And 
they're going to live in that area, you know, and then move to where the does are when, when the rut comes around. But so I think that could really skew you too, because like what I've found is those bucks are living in areas where it's maybe not as desirable of an area, but they're social, there's some anti-social, you know, personality to them where they like to hang out in these other areas. And, and I think that could really skew your buck numbers um, in some ways too. And that habitat that they like to live in is not real ideal for surveying them either. Sometimes it's, um, you know, the, the thicker understory and ferns um, can make it probably hard for your fecal samplers to collect fecal samples with, you know, with that, the ferns and stuff blocking stuff out. Sometimes it's hard to see that. Um, I don't know. Well, I, 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 I totally agree with you. And that's, we started off the fecal sampling using technicians and, that's exactly the reason why we went to the, uh, the trained dogs. The dogs can find those fecal samples even under uh, ferns, uh, sow owl, everything else that you have on the coast range. It's, it's amazing what they're capable of doing. And so that's, I think, is the reason why uh, we find so many more males in the population using fecal sampling than we do with any other technique is that those dogs are so good at finding samples that technician, hunters, everybody else would, would totally overlook. And so it's yeah. what you're saying is spot on. That's, uh, that's really the, Go ahead, Matt. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I got another question here. Did you find the buck-to-doe ratios be the same between the federal and the large and small private areas, or was it different? Uh, to be honest with you, I haven't looked at that. Uh, what I've done is I've just lumped, I've lumped all of our, uh, sex ratio data together for the WMUs. I have that I would, information. I, I could go back and the same. I would assume it would be the same because the, the amount of deer there is probably more based off of the viable feed for them to live and survive on. And the, the population dynamics are probably going to be the same, I would think, but I, I would anticipate that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so well, when I met the yeah, folks with the, with the dogs, really nice people from Colorado, I believe that's where they were from. They had some labs and some German shepherds and, um, they, I actually ran into them the first time in the Elliott state forest, which if anyone has spent any time in there, um, they've got some, uh, some second growth maybe a little bit of old growth. Um, logging practices have been down in there, uh, due to politics, um, I shot my first blacktail deer ever in there, which is hard to believe. There's not a lot of deer that are uh, observed in there. It's more of a elk country in my book. Um, but they said that they were finding quite a bit of uh, blacktail fecal in the old growth timber, which I found really shocking. And so I guess what my question is, uh, you know, knowing that the clear cuts are good habitat for blacktail deer and uh, you know, looking back to logging practices from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, when we were really cutting stuff down and the uh, blacktail populations seemed to be doing really well. And now the uh, logging trends kind of went down and now they're coming back up. Like, how does that affect the populations? And, you know, you look at the, the old days before logging practices and the old timers talked about um, buck hunting in the old growth. So maybe touch 
to what you guys are learning about old growth timber and um, clear cut practices for the overall population? Well, what I can tell you, and I, I don't want to get into the poli politics of land management, um, but what I can tell you is that uh, we do see lower densities of deer in old growth type habitat uh, compared to situations where there are clear cuts or openings for those deer to utilize. And I think that revolves around the forage availability for those animals. Uh, obviously, what, what black-tailed deer need is grass, uh, young shrubs, the, the early cell stages of forest growth to, to really uh, be able to put on the pounds and the body fat that they need to survive. You don't see that type of forage availability in situations where you have closed canopy-type habitats essentially the older growth. And, and so one of the grad students that I had working on some stuff, we found that there, there's actually a, um, uh, what, what should I call it, kind of a sequence of utilization as a clear cut matures. The first one to three, four years of habitat has the highest numbers of deer in it. And then as that, particularly in the coast range, as those clear cuts start to mature and you get uh, a, a really dense type cover for the next, um, let's say, seven, eight years where you get that young growth of predominantly dug fir and, it, and it's totally obscuring the ground. You've all been into that. It's, yeah. it's that reprod type situation. Yeah. yeah. It's like sterile. The, the deer, no growth. Yeah. yeah. The deer start avoiding that. And so, but at about 10 to 12 years of, of stand growth age, the deer start using it again. And so if you can take, take this timeline in your mind and look at it. So about one to four years of age, for a clear cut, the deer really like it. Um, four to 11, somewhere in that age class, the deer avoid it. And then at about 12 years of age, the deer start using those clear cuts again. Well, at that stage, it's not a clear cut. It starts becoming that larger uh, pole stand type habitat. And then that moves into the older growth. Okay. And so that, that's been our experience with forest practices and the, um, and, and that information is available in his thesis at Oregon state. So, but, so it's fair to say uh, as our logging practices ebb and flow, as they, as, as we increase, uh, our logging practices, the, the deer herd increases, is that? Well, I, I think what you can do is you can take a look at, the percentage of habitat across the WMU, and uh, and this is in a very general sense, the, the, the more of that WMU that is in small private and large private habitat, probably those WMUs are going to have higher densities of deer 
than in WMUs that have a large percentage of old growth type habitat in it. Okay. So I got it. It's going to change. Um, along the lines of that, um, kind of along with what I was discussing earlier during the daytime, do you guys have a preferred habitat type for the daytime for during the day? Or is that something that you maybe haven't really pulled out of the data set? Well, we, we, we haven't specifically looked at that. What I can tell you is we've looked at the habitat preferences of our radio collar deer. Uh, predominantly does and, uh, and and they use and so this this is based on um, a, a full analysis of all of the locations that that animal is using so it includes daytime and nighttime data our does are using habitat that is grass and shrub dominated and they're actually avoiding uh, old growth habitat based on so so it's a um, use availability type analysis and mm-hmm. so if you take a piece of piece of habitat 50% of that let's say is old growth 50% is shrub and grass they will overutilize the 50% of the habitat that's shrub and grass and underutilize the old growth and is that is that a uh, is it recording their the time the actual time spent in that terrain or is that like when there's movement the radio collar detects it or how how does that is, is that the actual total amount of time spent in that terrain then? Okay, the way that that works is um, the radio collar data when it gets a location it has a timestamp on it, and so we know. Um, and we can't, we haven't gone into that detail yet, but like I said, over the course of an entire year, for an example, those animals, the, the proportion, the proportion of the locations that we have on that animal, more locations are occurring in shrub and grass type habitat than what you would expect by based on the percentage of habitat available for them to use. Okay. Now, we have the option, and we haven't done this yet, we can go back and look at the habitat use by time period within that, let's say, a 24-hour time period. And, and, and not, um, how should I put, really narrow down on when they're using the habitat that they're using by a uh, diurnal versus nocturnal type period but we haven't gone there yet. Mm. That would be really interested because I mean, obviously we're, we're limited to that diurnal time period and during the day. And if we were able to, you know, at least uh, have some generalizations that animals are preferring, you know, this type of cover during the day when they're, wherever they're bedding at. And if we could extrapolate it even further between bucks and does, because I mean, I have my, my assumptions on it, um, and I feel like bucks kind of, they like, you know, different areas than does. It seems like does you'll see frequently, regularly into those areas you're talking about. But bucks tend to be a lot more, especially in heavily hunted public areas, they tend to not come out into those areas the does are frequenting all the time. 
So I, I would think you would see a difference there too between male and female, but maybe just during hunting season though. Well, I can tell you that behavior and movements change once hunting season starts. <laughs> and I've, we've, we've learned that from uh, the whitetail studies that hunting pressure has a, a really, really significant ink, uh, effect on especially buck movement, but really all deer movement, it looks like. So looking at the, at the, the big picture is the herd health and dynamics, like the overall population, is it better today than it was in that, uh, 19, you said 1994 is when you saw the decline. And that's like two years before we lost, uh, uh, hound dogs as a management for for uh, predation and bear baiting. So, as that started to decline, are have what what are the what are the numbers now? Like, are we still in a decline? Have numbers come back up with habitat change because logging is practices have increased? Like, what's the big picture look like as far as population goes? Well, big picture, our population as a whole still seems, and this is based on some other trend data, harvest data uh, and spotlight data and success rates from the hunters and stuff. It appears that our population as a whole in Western Oregon is, is still declining slightly each and every year. And, and I think the reason for this is based on some of the biological information that we have. Uh, that we've been able to collect from our radio collared animals. If you take a look at ungulate populations in general, the adult doe survival rate and the fawn recruitment rates are the two critical components in maintaining or increasing ungulate populations across the environment. And our adult doe survival rates, based on our radio collar data, are they've been bouncing around a little bit and it's pretty consistent from unit to unit, but they're about 80%. And so what that means is if you take a hundred does today, one year from now, only 80 of them will be alive. And that's the, the mortality is from all kinds of things, but only 80 of them will be alive a year from now. And, and what that, you have to look at, and that mortality is like you say, it's it's predation, it's automobiles, it's it's uh, uh, poaching, it's yeah, yeah, everything. So how and, how can we? So, how, it doesn't sound sustainable. Then, like, how can we be uh, allotting doe tags um, in a in a deer herd that uh, is on the downward trend? Okay. Let, I'll get back to that in just a second, okay? okay. Let me um, let me tell you what, what, what the population as a whole is kind of doing, and then I'll come back to the okay. doe tags. <clears throat> so, so with an 80% adult doe survival rate, you're going to have to have at least 40 fawns recruited per year into that population to maintain the, the adult doe losses. Okay, does that make okay. sense? Yep. Because if you get if you get forty fawns recruited, fifty percent of them will be does, which means twenty fawns will be recruited. You lose twenty does, and so the population is kind of stabilized. Okay. The fawn survival rates that we have from our studies right now 
we're getting less than 40% recruitment rate per year. And so with our adult doe mortality uh, and survival at 80% and our fawn recruitment rate at less than 40 fawns per, per hundred does per year, every year that those two things um, match, the population is going to decline just a little bit because you have 80, 80, um, well, let's, let's go to the survival um, or, or the mortality. So you have 20 fawn or 20 does lost and you're only recruiting 18 fawns. Every time that yeah. happens, the population is going to decline just gradually. And I think that's what's going on. So what we have to do as an agency Somehow we're going to have to get either the adult dose survival rate to increase or, and, or have our fawn recruitment rates increase to get that population back up. And that's going is to be a, based on, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Is a fawn recruitment rate, is that a fawn living for one year? Like, yes. Or is that based off of one year? Like the, like the dose survival? So that's a fawn that is yeah. born and lives to be one year of age. Exactly. So it's recruited. So the does are recruited in as, as your yearlings the following year. Okay. So what what we feel is really the key factor for does survival and fawn recruitment is the body condition of those does. And if you have poor body condition, essentially you're going to anticipate poor survival rate of the does and poor fawn recruitment. So as an agency, what we have to do is we have to promote a habitat composition across Western Oregon that is providing the habitat that they need to be able to survive and recruit. Okay. Now the reason that we can still offer some antlerless doe tags or antlerless tags in some of our seasons is that those are used in specific areas for management purposes other than population uh, management. They are in areas where there are damage issues that the deer are causing situations to private landowners that, that we as an agency are obligated to take care of. And so that's really the, in 99% of the cases, that's where our antlerless tags are issued is to decrease the population in those areas where blacktail are causing damage to private landowners. Okay. So to increase the herd, we have the, the only tools we really have is to, to, um, to create better habitat through having partners with the landowners, right? I mean, we don't really have the tools to control predation anymore. So, exactly, that's that's the only thing that we have uh, as a tool that we can do on a, on a large scale basis. Okay, um, there that are situations that where that or decrease the doe harvest rate to like by limiting doe tags. But you said if it, if it is mostly well, on private land, then it's not going to be as much of an effect, probably. Yeah, exactly. And 
to be honest with you, the number of doe tags that are distributed across Western Oregon, um, even if we stopped every single one of them, it probably wouldn't have a major impact on the population as a whole. And, and so that's, that's the reason why we feel that we can, we can still zero in on those areas that private landowners are having issues with deer causing damage and, and um, solve their problem and still maintain a, a good population of does across the uh, Western Oregon. Now, if we had uh, a, a large sampling of antlerless tags distributed across Western Oregon, yes, we would have probably an impact on our populations. But truthfully, uh, in, in my estimation of what we can do for as an agency, is we have to make those agreements with private landowners and try to promote development of black-tailed deer habitat across Western Oregon that is going to provide the type of habitat that those animals need to get to the body condition that they can um, all be very healthy, uh, avoid uh, mortality through all kinds of diseases and other factors, and produce a lot of really good, high-quality fawns that survive. So, And along those lines, the, the thing that I'm trying to do right now is with all this research is we're, we're in the process of developing a black-tailed deer habitat management model that will be able to provide to the federal government, to Forest Service, BLM, to private landowners if they wish to develop habitat and say, if you want to develop black-tailed deer habitat on your land, here's what you need to do. And that model, I hope, will be coming out in the next couple of years. Oh, that's exciting. That's exciting. So what about, as we talk about this habitat and uh, um, private, private property, uh, timber company lands, we know that clear cuts create this grocery store effect. Um, but then we also know that uh, the spraying of these clear cuts um, is management from the timber companies to keep uh, all the brows basically out of the out of the cuts. I mean, do we have any way of uh, politicking towards changing their practices to uh, help the ungulate populations? Or I don't know how that what that looks like. Well, the only thing the agency can do, um, obviously, is to try to cooperatively work with the large private uh, owners. And uh, almost all of those individuals or the companies that have those private lands, they are in in the business of of making money. Trees, yeah. And if if they require spraying to be able to... uh, make the bottom line a profitable uh, product, then it's going to be very difficult, I think, even for the agency to convince them not to do it. Right. Because you, you're, asking, you're asking them to essentially go into the red on their management of their property. Okay. And, and, they, and they can't do that. What about on a state or government uh, level? We can, we can encourage them to do that, by all means. Right. And what about on a, on a public land level? Like when 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 the state um, is is doing a, a clear cut, say tomorrow, and and how they uh, what their management uh, is for that. 
replant and pesticides and okay what i think you'll find on state property is, is that um <laughs> our state properties also have some obligations to providing money because right. some of those monies are used for school uh, funds school systems and yeah. everything else and so it becomes very difficult. I don't think that you're going to see much spraying on state-owned properties, yeah. Uh, if anything at all. Now, when you go to the federal government properties, the BLM properties and our Forest Service properties, they are obligated under other issues with um, uh, force. Well, how should I put it? Federal mandates for managing their properties. And a lot of that has to do with management of those properties for endangered species. And mm. in some cases, and, and in, in, actually in quite a few cases, the management for endangered species or threatened endangered species trumps the management for black-tailed deer. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Um, awesome, awesome stuff. So what about, I guess the last thing I really got here is, is predation. I know that, that, that's always, you know, um, a big talk amongst hunters and a lot of us are, um, can be uneducated about the topic. Uh, you'd mentioned that you did bobcat studies in Colorado. Um, I've heard, you know, we know that lions are, are a big factor. I've heard bobcats uh, play a, a pretty major role in predation on on blacktail deer. Um, you know, maybe maybe talk a little bit about that and, uh, and and also wolves. Wolves down there in the Cascade Range now they're finding that you know the population from what I heard is doing you know has grown. So do you guys see an effect maybe on wolves too? Just add that in there. And black bears, I know they they're pretty good at getting them when they're first born and. So yeah, maybe maybe uh, we can we can speak about that before we wrap it up. Okay, um, I'd be more than happy to. Um, it kind of depends on whether you're talking about the adults or the fawns. Let's start off with the adults. Um, and again, this is from our radio caller data. Uh, predation on adult does, the, the highest cause of mortality, or, or how should I put it, the the mortality cause, predation is the highest cause of mortality for our adult does. Uh, about 35% of the mortality that we have documented thus far has been from predation. A majority of that is from mountain lions. Okay, that's on the adult does. So 35% overall, and a majority of that 35% is from mountain lion. Um, now, if you go to our fawns, it varies depending on where you're at and because of the a suite of predators that are uh, existing in the environment with the fawns. So, f for example, our fawn study area east of Roseburg, um, previously, coyotes and bobcats were the critical component for predation in those fawns. And, but we had all kinds of other things. We had diseases. Um, uh, actually, 
if you believe it, we had some poaching of fawns, um, wow. vehicles, all kinds of other things. But, but for the predation aspect on the fawns in the Cascades east of Roseburg, bobcats and coyotes were the critical components up to the point that those fawns were about nine to ten months of age, and then mountain lion predation kicked in. Okay, so it, it changes in the fawn's lifespan. Okay. Now, that's that's what I assumed was going to be happening in our study area down in uh, in the Applegate unit. It turned out not to be the case. Down there, the early fawn mortality, the pre- predominant predation, is due to black bear. Yeah. And not yeah. To, not to bobcats yeah. and coyotes. And so it, it appears, yeah, it appears that there may be higher densities of black bear or here's the, here's the kicker to it. That habitat in the Applegate unit is a lot more open and, um, black bear are a lot of visual hunters more so than some of the other species. And I think what's happening is that the fawns that are being born in that habitat in the Applegate unit are more susceptible to bear predation just because of the habitat um, visibility, if you will. Hmm. So it's going to change depending on the habitat, the, the suite of predators that you're at, and the age of the fawn. <laughs> and so there's no, there's no pat answer to this. Now, interestingly enough, you should bring, bring the, the topic about wolves. Uh, east of Roseburg, we've just had a new, the, the indigo pack has been established. And this spring and summer will actually be the first, first time that we have the opportunity to investigate how much predation wolves in our fawn study area change versus not having the wolves there. And so we're going to have kind of a, a pre post-wolf study in our fawn study area and I'll have that information in well, a matter of months. Wow. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, could you talk about the second uh, predations? Number one, what are the other, what's maybe the second most cause of mortality amongst doe groups? Um, actually harvest was, uh, the highest, the second highest, and then unknown causes, disease, other factors, and then vehicles. As you go down the mm. as you go down the list. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that we are in the middle of a, uh, a Western Blacktail um, reconfiguration of our hunting seasons. Is that correct? We're, we're reevaluating how yes. that looks. Um, is there? Um, exactly. Is there any uh, ideas on where that's going to go? Are we going to shorten or or move uh, gun season dates? Um, do you have any idea of of how uh, this data is going to change the the big picture of hunting? Well, um, the research data has already impacted some of our management um, practices across Western Oregon. 
I, I foresee that in the future, once we get a little bit more detailed on some of the densities that we have and the survival rate and causes of mortalities, it probably will impact it. Now, that being said, um, we have to make sure that our management practices, regardless of what the research is saying, doesn't impact our ability to manage black-tailed deer across Western Oregon. And our commission are, are the individuals that more or less accept or, or reject our, our recommendations. And the, this last go-around at our commission meeting, uh, when we talked about changing the black-tailed deer uh, regulations. They were uh, very concerned about the the possibility that uh, changing the buck harvest to include spikes would have a negative impact on our populations. And so they have directed the agency to look at the impact of those regulation changes for the next uh, for foreseeable future. And so we are obligated and we want to collect additional information on changes in harvest rates, success rates, the proportion of spikes in the harvest, everything that we can from this new set of regulations and really evaluate in the future, did we do the right thing by changing the, the regulations or not? And we have to report back to the commission on our findings. And I can almost guarantee you if it's a negative outcome, they're going to tell us you go back to the original set of regulations. Mm. And so, glad to hear that. and that's regardless of, yeah. And so I think that that's regardless of what the research is saying, but our commission is uh, very conscientious about regulation changes, the impacts that it has on our constituent groups. And they want to make sure that the agency doesn't go off base uh, with their recommendations. And though, so they have directed us to take a look at it. And depending on what we find in the next few years, um, I would imagine that that's, that's going to be the direction. And that will be what drives the, the future recommendations for black tailed deer in the future. So do you think at this point our season dates are too liberal or um, our take is too liberal? Or do you think that... Um, that it's going to be sustainable. Uh, that's that's a very difficult situation uh, to address. Um, there are a lot of constituent groups out there that are wanting us to actually reduce the uh, um, amount of opportunity that people have for harvest. And we've, we've taken a look at that. I had another study a few years back that looked at the time span of harvest on on blacktail bucks primarily at what point in the season was that rate um, the highest and if you if you take a look at it in general what you found was that there was a small peak of harvest right at the beginning of the season and then again during the last week of the season and so, if you recall, so you're talking, years, you're talking the beginning, the beginning of October for rifle season, and then the end of of no, oh, and the end of, of rifle, rifle season. season. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. This data was based on rifle harvest predominantly, okay. and so there was there was a peak during the first week, 
and then a peak during the last week. Sure. And that probably had to do with the amount of effort that hunters are putting forth. They go out during the first t- first week, and then they kind of have to go back to work and do whatever, and then they come out again at, during the last week. And so, if if you recall, several years back we actually shortened well, that blacktail deer rifle harvest a little bit. You don't think it's because and and so you don't think it's because they come out and hunt them that opening week when they're un, when the pressure's low and they're able to fill some tags and now the pressure's on them, and then at the end of season. We're in that pre-rut. The bucks are on their feet. They're really, you know, moving pretty good come Halloween, November 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and they're getting caught. Uh, you don't think it's it's the actual uh, behavior than it is the um, effort put forth by the hunter. There's definitely some behavioral changes, but we feel that it's mostly related to hunter effort. Okay. And, and that's because of some of the, because some of the other data that we have available for us. Okay. Now but the hunter, uh, the hunter effort is going to follow the behavior of the deer around here. All the guys that know what they're doing, they're hunting more of the first week and they're doing it the last week yep. because of the deer behavior. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and so that goes back to your original question. Do I foresee changes in the amount of time span available for harvest? What we're concerned about is that if we reduce the number of days, particularly for rifle season, as you probably well are aware, a majority of our black-tailed deer harvest comes from the general uh, western rifle season. Right. It's 30, 30, so 30 days the largest impact. Yeah, and it has the largest impact on our populations. So what we are concerned about is if we start reducing that time period available for blacktail deer harvest and, and push it forward and shorten the season, that effort will just shift. Right. And we'll probably get the same amount of harvest, but in a shorter amount of time period. And so it really doesn't gain us much. And overcrowding. Population management. And then overcrowding, and for, overcrowding. For, for a hunter yeah. uh, experience. Yeah. So that's kind of the reason why, I mean, we've looked at it. We've got, the, we've got some data from some of the work that I've done with, with um, harvest rates and people submitting uh, samples to us and when they were taken. But that's limited information, okay. uh, and it's only for southwestern Oregon. But that little piece of information really tells us that, you know, given what we have work have to work with right now if we push the season forward and shorten it it probably wouldn't change things much now obviously if you go short enough if you really narrow it down to let's say a week 10 days that's obviously going to have an impact on harvest numbers and success rates and could change uh, the, the population trajectory overall but we, we don't want to go there. Right. Well, I feel that... Um, and the other thing that we've looked at, the other thing that we've looked at is the possibility of going to a draw hunt for black-tailed deer. Um, and I know I can, I, can, I can feel people cringing right now. Um, yeah. The agency does not want to go there. 
Yeah. We, we want to have the opportunity for people to buy over-the-counter tags. Well, I know, I've got if a, things get, and then now, if they get so bad, we'll probably end up having to go to that. I just feel like Eventually. the best time to kill a mature blacktail buck is October 30th through November 10th. And that those season dates, uh, half of them go to the rifle hunters or, or go to rifle hunting, I should say, go to rifle hunting. And then there's like that break between rifle and archery season where they're kind of uh, not being hunted for that week or whatever. But I, I think a, a lot of rifle hunters don't realize that that last couple of days, of October and that first week of November is probably when bucks are most vulnerable and, and guys that are realize that are, are your most successful rifle hunters. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. I got a analysis of just of the information you provide us with. So based on all this, you know, it sounds like we're most concerned about doe survival and fawn recruitment. Right. And exactly. Um, one of the things so if we're trying to help doe survive, we talked about habitat, that's one thing, right? But then we've also got, if we've got a 35%, you know, predation rate or doe mortality rate from mountain lions, could you speak, I know this is a hot topic and I, everybody's got their opinion on it, but um, having a, you know, a more controlled management of mountain lions to uh, help some of the doe survival uh, rate, uh, would that be a viable option? And I know that gets into state managed uh, management of the cougar costs money versus having, you know, like uh, the public being able to manage it through dogs, which we lost the ability to. I mean, what uh, is that something that the state could potentially push forward um, or does that have to be a state voted upon thing for by the people, the general public? Um, it's very unlikely that the agency, uh, would be able to make that recommendation um, because it is currently in law uh, on how how we manage uh, mountain lions in the, in the state of Oregon. Now, that being said, um, there, there's also some considerations. Um, there has been huge numbers of research studies done all across Western United States looking at the impact of cougar uh, mortality impacts for deer populations. Almost without fail, it has been shown that it's very, very difficult to show a increase in deer populations with a strict management regime that reduces cougar populations. Because what happens, because there are all these other predators on the environment, um, and factors of mortality, what happens is if you reduce cougar predation, other sources of mortality start kicking in and they become the important factor in reducing that population. And so it's almost, it's almost, um, how should I put it? It's almost not worthwhile. Exactly. Of, of, of doing that, of, of uh, reducing cougar populations to increase deer populations because it has been shown that it doesn't really provide the return on your investment. 
So what you're saying is when, the, when, the, when if you guys do like a prescribed lion removal, bring in the houndsmen, what happens is the bobcats and the coyotes and the bears just pick up where the where the mountain lion left off. Is that is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. But it, it's all all mortality factors. And, and are you guys worried? with the new predator, you know, the new kid on the block with the wolf moving into Western Oregon um, and how that's going to change the situation or. Well, it's definitely a concern. I can tell you that. Um, what we, what we don't know is whether wolf mortality on deer will replace other mortality or whether it will be additive to the amount of mortality that we're seeing. We haven't been able to really inve- investigate that yet, um, particularly on black-tailed deer, because we just have, you know, a few wolf packs in Western Oregon right now. But um, we're going to be hopefully getting situations, particularly up the uh, North Umpqua drainage here, where we've got the indigo pack. We've got some radio collared adult does. We're going to have the fawn study this spring. We'll start getting some of that information on whether wolf predation on black-tailed deer is going to be a factor that even causes more problems with our black-tailed deer or if it's just going to be kind of a replacement mortality. Now, what we see is uh, we've been doing some information collection on uh, wolves on, on the indigo pack. There is quite a bit of information uh, right now that shows most of that prey resources that they're using are elk and, and not black-tailed deer. Okay. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's the same in Idaho. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember seeing a yep. study in Idaho where the, the wolves were, were eating the elk and then the mountain lions were displaced and the mule deer population started to increase because they thought the lions were eating the mule deer but then the wolves kind of were thinning the elk out and it kind of was, it was creating a different chain of events. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you'll find is that, um, depending on how many different predators that you have in a system, how many different sources of prey that you have in that system, an individual predator or an individual prey item can have all kinds of different results. And, um, uh, I was involved with a, a study several years ago where we looked at uh, a, a suite of predators and the impact on uh, elk populations. And we looked at wolves, grizzly bears, black bears, cougars, everything that we could think of. And depending on where you were at in, in Western United States, the suite of predators that were there had differing effects on the elk population recruitment rates. Um, almost always grizzly bears were important. Yeah. Um, and, and then it went from grizzly bears. If you didn't have grizzly bears, then black bears were important in some areas. Mountain lions were important in others. If you had wolves, they were important versus the mountain lions. <laughs> and so it bounced around, but it really depends on a specific area. And it's very hard 
for a state agency that's managing a whole western side of, say, Oregon to know exactly what kind of management practices to implement given that each small area is going to be having different responses. And so it's very difficult. It's a lot more complicated than folks believe. Yeah, I know. And us, uh, these us hillbilly redneck hunters, we're always like, we think we could figure it out from, uh, from our armchair, (laughs) but it's, it's definitely complicated that the whole biology on how, how, uh, the circle of life works for sure. Um, one thing we forgot to touch on, and we talked about this uh, before we did uh, set this podcast up, um, kind of another hot topic in blacktail country is the um, what people refer to as bench legs and uh, crossbreeds. Um, are the blacktails crossing with mule deer? Are they crossing with whitetail, with Columbia whitetails? Um, can we uh, address that? Um, what I can tell you is very limited information that I have available to me. Uh, several years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to do some research on Colombian whitetail deer here in the Roseburg subpopulation. And there, there was a lot of concern about the, like you mentioned, the genetics. And it wasn't from the blacktail point of, of, of view. It was how how pure are the Colombian white-tailed deer? And so I, I was able to, we were doing a radio telemetry study on Colombian white-tailed deer at the same time. And so I was able to collect samples from all kinds of um, white-tailed deer here around Roseburg, which exists in a area that has a lot of black-tailed too. And we took samples from individuals that appeared to be pure Colombian white-tailed deer pure uh, black-tailed deer and what you would think based on their uh, physical characteristics may have been crossbreeds. I sent that information to a specialist in Texas who specializes in genetics. He came back and more or less told, told us you have two deer. You have white-tailed deer and you have black-tailed deer. You don't have any crossbreeds. Mm. So, um, th- that's the information that I have available on Colombian white-tailed deer in a very small local area here around Roseburg. What, a, that what about doesn't seem? Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. It doesn't seem like the, that there were genetic crossbreeds. They were either pure whitetail or pure blacktail. Okay. And what about what about the Cascades? Uh, bucks coming in, blacktails coming in contact with mule deer. That one I don't have any information on, but I can tell you that we have uh, captured mule deer, what appear to be mule deer, in some of our high elevation blacktail deer traps. And we do have radio telemetry data on what appears to be a blacktail deer going over the crest of the Cascades into mule deer country to fawn. Mm. And so there is definitely interchange between what most people consider to be mule deer and blacktails. And it's, it's right along that crest of the Cascades is where it's occurring. 
Um, genetic wise, I don't know what that means. Um, we really don't have any specific gen- genetic data to, to try to sort that out. Okay. I was, I, I don't know if it's true, but I'd heard that the record books, uh, Boone and Crockett record books are now doing like a DNA test. And if you kill a buck and say like the, a Cascade blacktail area, and um, his DNA can come back as being a Colombian blacktail, and then he can be uh, put in the book, uh, so on. I don't know um, how much truth there is to that, but I'd heard that that is uh, a new practice. Well, I know for years uh, the record books had, had um, I guess you'd call it kind of a, an arbitrary line yeah. uh, between different... Um, screens of deer. Yeah. And I haven't heard, but I would imagine that since the genetics now are so precise, why not go to that yeah. and, and use a validation of genetics instead of a arbitrary line, line like two miles, two, two miles east of I five or whatever. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't know. Is there anything, uh, anything we're missing, Matt? Um, no, I think you have been more than gracious to spend all this time with us and, and share the information. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's been an extremely interesting conversation, and it's cool to talk to somebody that's actually doing this for for a living. Um, it's really cool. Me, me and Matt spend like two, three, four hours a night during hunting season trying to figure out uh, – uh, blacktail deer, you know, just uh, constantly throwing uh, ideas uh, back and forth and looking at whitetail uh, uh, data sets and uh, just, you know, we're kind of obsessed with trying to figure out these uh, elusive creatures for sure. Well, I can tell you the, the pleasure has been all mine. Um, obviously, I'm in it for uh, the population standpoint yeah. and, and trying to make sure that the agency does the right thing with black-tailed deer populations. And so that's, that's my goal. Well, we appreciate, um, we appreciate you uh, doing that job. It's a tough job to, for one guy to, to obtain, but yeah, we appreciate that for sure. Thank you. Definitely. Well, well by all means. And, and if anybody wants uh, some further information, uh, don't hesitate to have them get a hold of me and, and, and hopefully with, with everybody involved with it, all the, uh, dedication that we have in the research program and in the agency will continue to have good black-tailed deer populations across Western Oregon. I like it. Thanks to everybody for supporting the podcast. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. Leave us a review. Helps grow the podcast. Check us out on Instagram or tradquest.com. Keep the wind in your face. The spot and shoot a big old buck this November.
شهید 